Welcome to the inaugural broadcast of the Retrospectacle Podcast of 2016. And tonight we're on episode 15, Unique Food Festivals in the United States. Dave, you have to try some of this. Oh, what a hell of a beer. Alright, well we'll get to that, of course. But uh, welcome everybody to uh, to the Retrospectacle Podcast. And you, you could certainly be listening out of order, but if you're listening in chronological order, this is the first show that we've done in 2016. Um, We're not even done yet, we've just started. Right, it's the first show that we've just started in 2016. That's right. <laughs> to be exact. Let's be pedantic here. So so originally we wanted to do a show about food fest with adjectives like bizarre or wacky, and there's a lot of weird stuff out there. And there's there's stuff like the testicle festival, um, There's there, where they're actually cooking up animal testicles and eating them and uh, doing wacky things with those. Uh, when I think of wacky, wacky things, well, when I think of wacky or bizarre, like you're talking about people picking up uh, cow pies and throwing them as far as they can. I at, was watching Daniel Tosh, and there was a guy doing wacky things with testicles. Right. So I looked at those, and I'm like, well, let's let's maybe not go all that way. The, we don't need 90 minutes of jokes like that previous one. Yeah, and just because a festival is is quirky, for example, doesn't mean it's uh, it's bizarre or wacky. So I just threw those adjectives out, and instead I went with... Uh, it could mean it's wonderful. Well, it could, and it does, probably. But I, I mean, I'm not going to attend testicle festival. Just me, personally, I'm... <laughs> I'm not incredibly interested. That's all. You know, no big deal, right? So, uh, so basically, we decided to go with uh, with unique as a better word. And what I mean by that is, uh, the more I learned about these festivals and what they meant to their communities and the charity work that they were providing, and the ones that were focused on one particular kind of food. So tonight we're talking about a bacon festival called Bacon Fest Chicago. The National Lentil Festival held in Pullman, Washington, and the Gilroy Garlic Festival in Gilroy, California. And because they're so specific, then they can focus on those to a really high degree. And there's a bunch of cool stuff that's centered around those things. Uh, and so the idea tonight, I guess, is if you haven't heard of those festivals, to let you know what and where they are. Excellent. And how you can attend them. And uh, we're also going to be joined by representatives from all of those festivals to the director of one, the president of another, and uh, the founder of, of, of the other. The other. Very nice. Yeah. So a good good group of people. And uh, also in the spirit of festivals, so we've decided to hold our own little mini beer fest during the show tonight. So I think, you know, they're having a lot of fun in their respective festivals. There's no reason why we can't have a good amount of fun as well here. We right? try here to have to have fun. And it's, this is a little more organized than usual. Usually we just pull up a beer and, and drink it. So now... If we call it a mini beer fest, then we can think of ourselves as entrepreneurs, as uh, and connoisseurs, as engineers and and scientists and uh, engaged professionals in the sport of champions. We're great thinkers, exactly. <laughs> so the idea is to feature some great beers that originate from each respective fest home state. And like I said earlier, we've got Chicago and Illinois. Um, if you didn't know that, then then I don't know if I can help you. <laughs> Pullman, Washington, and Gilroy, California. So it was a little bit of a challenge to find a beer that was from the state of Washington here in Illinois. 
there's only a couple. Most of them are from Oregon or from Portland or you know yeah. from around that area. Yeah, I, we get to shoots out here. That's for sure. Which is great. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that area or the beers they have. It's just that they don't distribute a lot of those all the way over here. Right. It's expensive to you know send beer all the way to the East Coast or even to the Midwest. Yeah. So let's kick it off with uh, an event held yearly near our hometown called Bacon Fest Chicago. And so we're starting off with a sample of beer brewed by Pipeworks, which is right here in Chicago. And recently we actually tried to go out to do a tasting, but turns out that they are... Uh, they're sort of a, a newer brewery, and they're focusing on their craft and getting it distributed and not so much the taproom thing. So they don't have a taproom yet, and in order to get their beer, you have to buy it at local uh, distribution centers, or you have to local go... Local distribution centers. Like a bar. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Where they distribute the beer directly to me. It's a, it's a direct-to-retail, <laughs> direct-to-me kind of Direct-to-customer. Uh, so this Pipeworks beer, it's called Easter Bunny versus Unicorn. It's a pyramid scheme. They have really interesting, creative, uh, wacky names for wacky, their beers. Quirky. And uh, this is a seasonal. Um, it's made just recently for this particular holiday, which happens to be Easter coming up. And uh, could you tell us a little more about it? Easter Bunny versus Unicorn. The battle rages on, this time in the squared circle. The roped ring of doom. <laughs> a fight of mythical proportions pits the swift and courageous Easter Bunny against the always dynamite and dangerous foe, the majestic Unicorn, featured in other beers as well. Mm. The odds are equal. No one knows who will win. Place your bets, crack open a bottle of this hoppy wheat wine-style ale, and crown yourself champion of this epic duel. I agree. I think we win this one because we get to drink the beer. Um, I've always been a fan of barley wines. It's not quite a barley wine style, but it's hoppy... Um, and a little weedy, not very overwhelming at all, but it's got that wine, uh, like the beer wine flavor to it, which kind of kicks you uh, at the end of like a drink. Well, it's a it's a high alcohol beer, right? It's it's ten percent, indeed. And so you can taste the alcohol right away, and 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 like you said, it's got an interesting color to it. It's it's like a like a darkish hazel brown. Um, and it's very, very good, I think. And it tastes a lot more like ale, but with that aftertaste of, of wine, like you mentioned. And alcohol, really, is what I'm getting. Yes, yes. it Definitely, you can taste the booze in it. But you say it's more like wine because, like, for wine is like 13 or 14% alcohol, whereas a beer is usually like 7 or 8. Well, it reminds me of a barley wine. So whatever it is that makes a barley wine a barley wine, it's similar to what they're doing here. Well, later, we may or may not uh, do a barley wine-style ale. Fantastic. I, <laughs> I'm i only here for the ride, Dave. Okay. Well, yes. <laughs> uh, anyway, so so let's talk about Bacon Fest. So it's been going on for a few years now, um, and we've been going to it for a few years since it is local here in our hometown. Do you remember when the first year we decided to head out there was? Uh, we have been there for three years now. So this will be the third year? No, this will be the fourth year. So, so we're, we're becoming better. So veterans. I believe we first went in 2013. <laughs> and there was only three of us. Right. And then the following year, we had eight. So it's like triples. And then the following year, last year, we had 13 people. Now, we're losing a few due to there being so many other events going on in Chicago that very day. Um, but I think that we're going to have a really good time at Bacon Fest. And you can also still go to Bacon Fest, everyone. Last year, when we did this uh, podcast, we talked about Bacon and Bacon Fest. There were no tickets left for Bacon Fest, at least for most of the sessions. That's well, not entirely true. There was one session left, right? There was 
there was one session left, and there were some other VIP sessions that were still okay. available for the other days. I believe there are tickets still available all around, right? Well, I haven't checked uh, right right now. Well, uh, I'm already to the Googles to take a look. And I'm sure we'll touch base with, uh, with Seth about that in a little bit as well. Um, but yeah, last I saw that tickets were available, so you can definitely step on up and, and try to get into one of those services. Yeah, definitely still available. Cool. So, uh, do you remember why we decided to go to Bacon Fest and how it came about? I, I mean, I don't really remember how it came about. I believe that you mentioned it. Um, I'll take credit for it. That's fine. I don't remember. Did I mention <laughs> it? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, it's one of those things that we probably became aware of and decided that we have to go check it out. Yeah, so, so dishes there have the distinction of being prepared by some of the most talented and recognized chefs in the Chicago area. And it's a little bit of a pricey ticket, which we'll talk about in a minute, but there's reasons for that. Um, so here's a few dishes that were served last year, for example. There's one by uh, Zach Prince of Woodhaven Bar and Kitchen, uh, a restaurant um, and bar that I've been to, by the way, fantastic place. It's called the Ultimate Bacon Bison Bite. And these are all from last year. Um, this was cherry wood bacon and goat cheese infused bison with a pepperoni aioli and jalapeno wrapped in smoked bacon and drizzled with blueberry buffalo bacon dipping sauce. So I like a, a food item that, although somewhat simple in, in what it actually is on the plate, takes a paragraph to describe based, <laughs> based on all of the techniques and items being And it used. only takes one bite to consume. The, was that one at the session that we went to? Did you try that one? Uh, I, I don't think so. Did we go Friday night of uh, last year? No, we went, I think, Saturday afternoon. Yeah, I think that was a Friday night dish. Um, another one is the Bad Apples Craig Fast. And again, that's another uh, restaurant and bar downtown. Uh, it's called Gulliver's Travels. And that's porchetta stuffed with jagdwurst, which is bacon sausage, which is just the idea of that, you know, warms the cockles. <laughs> In a blanket of bacon, which, see, these descriptions are just fantastic. Blankets of bacon just make you so cozy. Apple and jicama slaw. And jicama is something I just uh, discovered a couple of years ago, which is such a cool vessel to to, uh, to use in dishes. Um, on a bacon crostini. So a lot of bacon, a lot of pork. Um, I like the thought of a bacon crostini. And then apple and, or apple and jicama is such like a, um, a contrasting sort of crunch and, and flavor to all of that. So it's really neat. I don't know if I had that one. Well, again, I don't, think, I don't think that one was on our session either. I think that was from Friday. Okay. Um, there are some other ones, though, here from Saturday that we did go to. Maybe you recall. Uh, one is from Honey Buttered Fried Chicken. Um, Christine Sikowski and Josh Culp there made fried chicken French toast. And so that's uh, it's basically fried chicken on top of a French toast with bacon, honey butter, and maple bourbon syrup. So it wasn't something that was... Uh, where the technique was off the charts or anything like that. It was something that they already make at the restaurant, and they just stepped it up by making bacon honey butter. Making it even better. Yeah, and I did try that, so I do remember that dish. Dave, I had two of those. We had two. Well, that's, <laughs> That was awesome. That's impressive because if you have two dishes there, I mean, there's like 60 restaurants, but you can only really fit like 20 things into your stomach. Yeah, but uh, this was one of those things that, you know, as we're walking around at the end, and a lot of places have wound down and the crowds wound down. They still had some of this available. So I just went back for a second one. Hey, I, I can't blame you. It's like at the end of the day at Great America and you just stay on the roller coaster and ride it like three times. Right. Uh, another one from Quince Restaurant uh, with uh, Chef Christine Antonian was Wind Pigs Fly, which is a great name. 
for a, a bacon-related dish, and that was a chocolate bacon Oreo with bacon pop rocks, um, and that was delicious. Even though I try to stay away from sweets, I mean, if you put bacon in it, let's just call it. There's a couple of sweets that are totally worth having, even if you don't have a sweet tooth. Yeah, I mean, let's just call it a savory dish then, because there's bacon in it. It's like fine. a couple years ago when they had the bacon shake. You know, I don't care if you're lactose intolerant. You have that. It was good. <laughs> well, I. <laughs> you know, there's, as long as you don't drive home with me. There's medicine you can take for that. So. Sure. Uh, and then Three Floyd's Brew Pub did one, and I believe that was in a later session, but uh, that was uh, by Pat Niebling, and that's a Bacon and Nuja Hot Link with bacon, jam, pickled fennel, and Dark Lord hot sauce. So cool, first of all, that this great beer that they make, and is a huge festival in and of itself, they make a hot sauce out of. That's fantastic. Um, but it was basically uh, just like a little a little sausage with bacon jam. And, I've never heard of induja before. And pickled fennel. So uh, That's interesting. Just to give you an idea, all you people out there, if you're interested in this particular festival, those kinds of dishes are what you should expect from everybody. Everybody raises the bar here, the bacon bar. So do you remember? Bacon bar is high. Do you remember what your favorite dish was at any of the bacon fests you've been to? You mentioned the bacon shake. I wouldn't consider that the best because it's not that good of an example of a savory dish. Very true. Very true. But it was delicious and it won an award. Some of the best things I've had. Um, I, one of the very first things I ever had at the first bacon fest, which was my ruin of the day, was the bacon pancake. It made me too full, but it was delicious. <laughs> it was one of the best things I've had there. Um, I also really like there was a foie gras meatball. With some sort of bacon something featured in it. That was incredible. I think that was two years ago. Um, that was like the lamb and bacon meatball with foie gras. I don't know. I just, I, I kind of get into like bacon drunk and <laughs> kind of just forget everything. And I'm just like in this blissful bacon uh, aura. Yeah. Well, that's a good place to be. It's I, the best place to do it at. I like the the traditional use of stuff. So I like the carnitas and the tacos. And I like the pork belly uh, sandwiches and burgers, because there's a lot of those. The guacamole was really good. But it, it it turns out that a lot of the time when when someone makes something really simple and just features this this great bacon in it, then it turns out just as good as some of the three or four star chefs that are there. Who are doing really complicated things. Which is not to say that those aren't great. Like there was one great chef, and I forget where he was from, but he made some kind of really complicated and difficult uh, to create it was like a ravioli of sorts, and that was really delicious. Yeah, I remember there was this really nice pork belly slider with a couple of really good things on it. That was really good uh, from the place in Effingham. Firefly. These restaurants, yeah, they come from the whole region. They don't, they're not just from Chicago. Well, that tells you something about the event. Yeah. So like I said, the price of the event is $100 for a regular general admission ticket, but you get almost all you can eat. Well, all you can eat for sure, and nearly all you can drink. <laughs> uh, if, I don't think there's anyone that has ever gone there... Uh, no one's and, ever been hungry when they've left. Well, been able to eat everything. I don't think it's possible. That's true. Maybe if you're uh, if you're Kenji there's not all or... you can eat for every single individual thing. <laughs> no, I just mean I, if you go in there and you have three hours to eat everything you can. I don't think that a human could go in there and actually have one of each thing. I'm Only not, Homer Simpson. I'm not sure it's possible. Only Homer Simpson. <laughs> so I think it more than makes up for it, and and. Uh, like I'll mention to Seth too. Would you even have time to eat everything? You'd have like two and a half minutes per station. Well, you you may end up on a stretcher or something like that, and I'm sure they don't want that unless they have a, a back warehouse or, or some kind of uh, storeroom full of 
bacon stretchers, which they could easily do. Bacon stretchers. You know, it's like the <laughs> the Chicago bacon flag. Oh, uh, man. You get carried out on that to the bacon ambulance. <laughs> Past the bacon protesters. That's right. Uh, there were protesters last year. That was interesting. Yeah. Uh, one more thing is that when, when they first started selling tickets... Uh, this year, it looked like they were gonna do like a food theme kind of kind of situation where it was smoky and sweet, um, and and there was another one that was spicy, and for it looks like they kind of backed off on on that idea because uh, people were thinking that all the dishes in that service were gonna be that way, which is fine by me. But as far as I'm concerned, um, I think that that when you go there you get a mix of every kind of uh of of theme anyway it's not like absolutely there's a huge variety of dishes it's not like everything is some bacon appetizer yeah and i wouldn't be afraid of smoke since that's the the very thing that the bacon is birthed out of yeah that's the re- that's the one that we're going to <laughs> they, they had what sweet smoky and, and spicy, spicy. Mm-hmm. or heat but but anyway those things will all be present just in in uh you know various dishes so yeah, you'll get that at all of them. So I thought we would do uh, five facts about bacon that are kind of interesting, and uh, we might do this with all of the different kinds of food festivals. I love facts. So starting the day with a high protein, high fat breakfast like bacon and eggs improves your metabolism and further facilitates circulation and digestion. So this is basically just all going to be great reasons why you should eat bacon all day long. Okay. <laughs> no, it, not. But seriously, like it actually is good to Thank start. Thank you for off, giving me permission to start off with some bacon, as long as you're not doing it every single day. Seventy uh, percent of all bacon in the U.S. is eaten at breakfast, and you and I have talked about this. That's an interesting thing. We did a show last year about the history of bacon, and there was a guy, this just weird, um, like salesman guy, who was, uh, I think, a cousin of Sigmund Freud for some bizarre reason, um, <laughs> who actually made it his his goal to like create a marketing campaign around bacon to try to get people to eat it for breakfast instead of only eating it for um, for lunch and or dinner. And he was successful and basically flip-flopped uh, the way that people in the United States consume and view bacon. Turned it into a breakfast food. And 59% of bacon is consumed on weekdays. Bacon is addictive. It actually... Uh, that means c- that people eat a ton of bacon on the weekend. Yeah. It actually uh, produces an addictive neurochemical response. So they have done clinical trials uh, in, in, and actually seen that if you eat bacon, then your brain kind of reacts to it and says, you know, this, this is great, give me more. <laughs> it stores that reaction. And, and that's why when you get the smell of bacon, uh, etc., you, you are immediately attracted to it and want to eat it. Fantastic. Um, women who are pregnant should eat bacon because bacon contains a chemical that helps in fetal brain development. So women, if you want a smart child um, and a well-rounded child, you should eat all the bacon. Well-rounded um, in more than one way. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, they're eating for two, right? So there's that. Um, three slices of cooked bacon contains about 100 calories. So that's really not very much. You know, they give you those those like 100-calorie snack packs. In the store, I would much you rather buy. have three pieces of bacon. Well, they have like a couple Oreos or like a little bag of Doritos. Yeah, if, if they sold bags that contained like three stri- uh, strips of bacon in them and I could just pick them up for a dollar, <laughs> then I would probably buy them all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, so that's, that's all we have there. And uh, we'd like to welcome to the show Seth Zurer, co-founder of Bacon Fest Chicago. And thanks for joining us this evening, Seth. My pleasure. Anytime. 
So when we talked to you around this time last year, you shared the story of how Bacon Fest came to be, transforming from an idea into a full-fledged and highly acclaimed now festival. At the beginning of the process, did you look to any other already established food festivals or large events out there for inspiration? Yeah, we did. I mean, the, the very first idea for Bacon Fest was that it would be, uh, it would be the burning man of bacon, um, <laughs> which is to say not, not so many hallucinogenic drugs or art cars and naked ladies, but that it would be a giant annual institution that people would come back to every year, that we look forward to every year. And so we kind of looked at events like that, you know, like your fish concerts, your gift whatever concerts, as, as things that are, are events that people look forward to and think about and plan the whole year around. Um, we also looked at local food events. There's a, there's a local farmer's market, the biggest farmer's market in Chicago called Green City Market. They do a benefit event every year called the Green City Market Chef's Barbecue, mm-hmm. which is an outdoor event and it features you know, an unbelievable array of really, really great Chicago chefs, folks like Balkan and, you know, they had something like, I think, 180 restaurants there. And that was a real inspiration for us because we, we would go to that event and walk around and connect with the chefs and try these incredible creative dishes using products from the farmer's market. And it just seemed like a great, fun community event that, that really brought a kind of echelon of chefs out there that, that wasn't necessarily always available at these kind of these kind of events. So we looked to that as an inspiration. We looked to things like Chicago Gourmet and Taste in Chicago, but... But we always were interested in bacon and making sure that there was the best chefs in the city doing wild, creative bacon stuff and connecting directly with people that were that were coming to the event. Mm-hmm. In a slight change from past year's events, the services at this year's Bacon Fest have uh, an associated featured cocktail. Saturday lunch on April 30th features the Tiki Cocktail, and Saturday dinner on that same night features an old-fashioned cocktail. Sunday brunch on May 1st has a Bloody Mary cocktail. So could you talk a little bit about why you decided to go that route? Are there going to be particular vendors that are featuring um, different kinds of Bloody Marys and Old Fashions and tiki drinks, for example? Yeah, there, there are. So, you know, we always have a wide variety of drinks at the event. So every session is going to feature things like Goose Island beer, Revolution beer, and Lagunitas. And every session will feature a variety of cocktails from different spirit partners, um, but then we also decided to add a layer to sort of help people pick which session they wanted to go to by having some extra featured cocktails at each session in addition to all the other drink options. So, for example, that Sunday brunch, we thought, well, you know, Sunday brunch, that's a classic time for a Bloody Mary. Mm-hmm. And this sort of great, I think Bloody Marys have gotten more and more creative and interesting over the last two years. And so we've invited a bunch of different folks to come and staff a Bloody Mary bar that's Sunday brunch only. If you love Bloody Marys, then you're going to want to pick Sunday brunch because that's going to be the only time when you're going to get to try, you know, an Uncle Dougie's Bloody Mary with bacon vodka, or or a Zing Zang Bloody Mary with 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 bacon vodka or with Tito's vodka. So we've got all sorts of different interesting Bloody Mary purveyors with different spirit bases and different garnishes. So it's just another reason to pick one session over another. One is going to give people some guidance, although. Everyone should know that every session of Bacon Fest features a overwhelming amount of bacon. <laughs> we have <laughs> nearly four tons of bacon at the event. Lots and lots of cool, interesting, different dishes that span the range of possible flavors from sweet to savory to spicy to whatever. Um, and then added on top of that, we have these cocktail featured cocktail options at each session. We're excited about the Saturday night at Old Fashions. We've got Templeton Rye, we know the good stuff. We're going to do... Uh, three different sample size, old different styles of old fashions 
at that Saturday night session only. So again, that's just a, another way for people to say, hey, I love bacon. I know I want to go to Bacon Fest. I'm not sure which session I should go to. Maybe this will be one little element that helps you pick one over the other. Great. You know, that's that's uh, old fashions are one of my favorites, and and it's cool to see that not only are they featured, but they're actually going to be exclusive to those particular services. Bacon Fest Chicago has continued to support the Greater Chicago Food Depository with a portion of ticket proceeds, and for that we salute you guys. Over the past several years, almost a million meals have been given out to Chicagoans in need just through donations from Bacon Fest. And one of the things that I've seen uh, through all of these different uh, festivals that we've talked to is that charity is a, is a huge thing um, that kind of goes throughout. So I assume that, that you're going to continue to work with, uh, with the Greater Food Depository or other similar charities? Yeah, we're going to stick with the GCFD. Um, you know, it's the largest food bank in the area, and it works with hundreds and hundreds of uh, smaller agencies, basically supplying a stream of food for people who are hungry in Chicago. And it was always important to us that we have some kind of a charitable component because, in part, you know, it, it, it means a lot to us. We feel like it's a scandal that there are so many millions of hungry people just in our, our area alone, mm -hmm. and we want to make sure that we're doing everything we can to give back to that community. It also means a lot to the chefs. I think that a lot of the chefs, you know, they, they see Bacon Fest as a marketing event. They see it as a fun event to go to, to hang out with their fellow chefs and drink and eat, but they also uh, feel very keenly the sort of scariness of the hunger situation in America, and they and they feel like, especially as people who are in the food business, who are in the business of feeding people, uh, that spend a lot of time and money, a lot of uh, sort of there's a lot of waste in the food industry, in the restaurant industry, and I think it always helps to have ways to counterbalance that that waste and that feeling of oh geez, you know, I'm doing all this food in my restaurant for people who can buy it, but then there's all these people in my area that just don't have it. They don't know where the next meal is going to come from. So it's important to the chefs too. And we think it's important to the audience uh, that comes to the event. We, we ask people to bring food donations, and we end up not only giving a portion of ticket sales, but we end up relaying a large number of donations in the form of non-perishable food from the event to the GCFD. So they have their barrels out there. And it ends up being thousands of pounds every year in addition to the to the cash donation that we make out of ticket proceeds. So it's important to us, and it, you know, I think it matters. I think people should think about sort of the hungry people in their area, and if there's any way that we can kind of provide a little karmic uh, counterbalance to the gluttony of Bacon Fest, we're, we're happy to do it. <laughs> That's great to hear, and, uh, and I think you're right. I think the culture has shifted a little bit nowadays where uh, when you're buying a product or going to an event or consuming goods in some way, that, uh, that I think the, the new generations have, have required almost that, that some of this stuff be going to a good purpose and not just into mm -hmm. the hands of you know, uh, commercialism, et cetera. So uh, mm -hmm. as of now, it looks like both general admission and VIP tickets are available to all three of the services. But if my experience in past year's events tells me anything, they're probably likely to start selling out any time. Um, <laughs> I hope you're right. Yeah, we have a history of the event being well attended and we've sold out every year so far so if you want to go to bacon fest you should definitely check out the ticketing page at baconfestchicago.com if people want to learn more about bacon fest we also are doing something new and fun this year in the form of our bacon fest podcast which is got three episodes already in the can but it's interviews with chefs interviews with local food media and bloggers uh, one that we just released this week uh, was an interview with uh, Dennis Lee, who's a food blogger at thepizzle.net, which 
you can kind of check it out. It's a really fun uh, blog. It's basically a food blog completely gone off the rails where he <laughs> samples all sorts of weird and strange recipes. And we, Dennis and I, sat down and drank bacon bourbon and ate bacon gumballs and tried out bacon with foam and made bacon chocolate shot glasses together and had a generally drunken good time in the podcast. So people should check that out too. Oh, that's super cool. So we'll post links to uh, to all of that stuff and, and do check out the food blog as well. Um, and I, uh, I I just wanted to say thanks very much for joining us, and we do look forward to attending the uh, the session on Saturday night and seeing a lot of you guys out there. Do you have any uh, any last words or any any secrets that you can tell us, Seth? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, no secrets. Although, if people are uh, are poetically inclined, there is a contest going on right now for free tickets, free VIP tickets to Bacon Fest. If you write a poem about bacon and submit it to uh, to us through email, we will uh, consider it put it in front of our Bacon Fest literary board, which consists mostly of my partner Andre's wife, <laughs> and uh, and that should be a fun way to win some tickets and a fun way to participate in the creativity of Bacon Fest, and we hope to get some cool poems in. Cool. Well, it sounds like you guys out there have a couple of weeks done to wax poetic for your own uh, tickets to Bacon exactly. Fest. Um, so that's great. We appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Have a good evening. You too, Dave. All right. And uh, as we finish that Easter Bunny versus Unicorn... Delish. It was pretty delicious, I'm thinking, yeah. <laughs> Great to have Seth on again. We uh, we did talk with him last year when we did the show, The the History, Passion, and Pursuit of Bacon, which I recommend checking out. I've been pursuing bacon for a year. Exactly. Well, for longer, really. <laughs> uh, so let's move on to our next festival that we're going to talk about today, the National Lentil Festival in Pullman, Washington. So in honor of the festival in Washington, we have with us an IPA from Pyramid Brewing Company that's based out of Seattle, Washington, just a few hours to the west. So why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about uh, about this particular IPA, and I'm still going to finish up here and, and grab myself some. All right, so this is, uh, as you said, Pyramid IPA, a medley of hops, if you will. Um, they don't have a you know clever saying like they do on the uh, Pipeworks beers. But it is a, a medium body, light golden ale. IPA shines from its hoppy start to its balanced finish. And it, it sounds like a greeting card. Pyramid's the name of the of the brewery, or just the name of the IPA? Uh, it appears as if it's Pyramid Breweries. Breweries. Well, I just wanted to get that right. <laughs> it's actually a good bridge to the next uh, festival because they have. Uh, Breweries in Seattle, Portland, and Berkeley. Mm. So what's the scoop? What's your opinion on this uh, pyramid? Very light. Wow. That was my first sip there, everyone. I just finished the barley wine, so I, I may have to chime in in a few minutes after the barley wine. Well, it wasn't a barley wine. You're correct. Uh, a wheat wine. There you go. So this one is only uh, 6.3% ABV, um, much uh, lighter in alcohol. In the last beer, so uh, you know, it's it's an incredibly light IPA. I imagine it'd be wonderful for like a hot sunny day. Yeah, so I'm I'm thinking everyone is already pretty intimately familiar with bacon, but 
What about lentils, right? When we were discussing this show, for example, I, I don't, didn't have a huge uh, appreciation for lentils, although I've had them in uh, numerous dishes, but always kind of thought of them as a, as a side item and didn't know anything about the background of them or what they provide for us or what they can be used in um, other than just as kind of a side dish. And I know that you didn't really uh, have very much of a, uh, a familiarity with them either, right? That's very true. I mean, I knew that lentils and beans were pretty much, you know, the same legume family. Um, but I really, you know, I, I don't know that much about them at all. Well, I didn't realize that they were so popular that they would have a festival. Yeah, so they're, they're from the same family that includes peas and beans. And they look kind of similar. And they're, they're something that, and there's a whole bunch of different kinds, right? But basically, they're, most of the, of the kinds of them need to be... Um, or they can be shelled, so they have like a shell on them. So like a soybean would be a lentil, right? Uh, or is soybean different? No, that's a different. That's a different thing. Okay, because that's I'm just relating it to what I know in the Midwest here. Sure. Because these are grown out in the area um, of like west or eastern Washington, Idaho, north uh, northeast Oregon, that like high plateau country. Yeah, and, and they're similar in a lot of ways, but they're not exactly the same. And, and where, they, where they came from was, uh, was actually really, really ancient places. They've been around for as long, basically, as our human civilization has been around. And uh, they're just about to break out to be a rock star ingredient in the next few years. Every once in a while, there, there seems to be some kind of ingredient or, or something in the food world that kind of breaks out. Um, for bacon, for example... That was something that was used almost to excess in um, like the in 90s and 2000s, and everything was bacon. They kind of backed off on that a little bit now, and I'm not saying that bacon is a bad ingredient to use or that you shouldn't use it in menus. Just that it's it's, it's been so commonplace now that it's less of a fad, at least. Yeah, or or foie gras, or you know, uh, a whole bunch of just these individual ingredients that get used a lot. And now that everyone's uh, more health conscious and uh, is cool with actually cooking things and not just heating them up in the microwave, uh, this becomes one of those things that ends up being used more often and it gets a lot more attention. So the, the reason is uh, why a lot of people are talking about them now is because, one, they're the, the third highest in protein among all nuts and, and legumes. So um, they're... There are a ton. There's a ton of protein in them, and so very for, good for you for vegetarians uh, or for people that have like a natural diet, or even for people that don't and they just want to eat healthier. That's a lot of protein that you can get from that without having to eat red meats, etc. Um, they have more potassium in a serving than a than a large banana does, which is a huge amount of potassium. Yeah, and they're loaded with uh, fiber and folate. Um, they are good generally in curries and stews and salads and chilies. Uh, I've seen a lot of people fry things with them, like patties and, and fritters and things like that. Like, they, like a patty of them? Well, that and other ingredients. Okay. So you would mix like, uh, let's say you mix like lentil and zucchini and uh, other things together and then fry it as a patty and serve it. Oh, that'd be good. Right. Uh, and then soups. And then also, as I mentioned earlier, just cooking it as a side to something. Uh, roast meats like pork, it's pretty good, or cooked fish like halibut or salmon. You can serve uh, that sort of underneath um, in a similar way to, to quinoa or rice or something like that, except uh, quinoa and lentils, for example, both serve uh, your health a lot more than just white rice or brown rice or something like that. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
So uh, just thinking about that and what they can be used in and how they can be used, um, you can take a, a package of lentils that you get from the store and just kind of throw them um, on the stove for 20 minutes and serve them. They don't need to be drained uh, or uh, soaked overnight like beans do and things like that. So it doesn't take as long to actually prepare them for a meal. And that's why, uh, again, I think that's, there's something that's going to kind of break out a lot now that everyone is, is thinking a little bit more about their health. But, again, I, I want to keep saying health because <laughs> they're delicious and there's a lot of different kinds of them. They're, uh, there's it's br- so remarkable because it is a delicious food, yet it's very healthy for you. Yeah. There's, there are uh, you know, a lot fewer drawbacks than there are maybe with bacon. Sure. I mean, you don't want to have bacon as a side to every meal because then you're probably shaving a couple of years off your life. If you ate lentils six days a week, <laughs> then that's probably good for you. Yeah, although, again, I, I, I would never recommend eating the same thing every day. But to your point... But as, like, you know, a, a small meal throughout the day. Yeah, I mean, you, you have any kind a of part meat of a meal and yeah. lentils or a salad and lentils and a soup with lentils. I've got some lentil soup in the pantry right now, for example. Um, but interesting facts about them. Like I said, it's, it's very ancient times... Where, uh, where they were used constantly, etc. They were found in the tombs of ancient Egyptians in 2400 BC. They were originally cultivated in the cradle of civilization at the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Um, the, the optical lens itself um, is named after the Latin word for lentil. How did that happen? Well, that's probably another another uh, show. We an, could, an entire show about Latin roots. Well, well no, we could, <laughs> we could do a show about uh, about the eye and bring our, our scientist friend on for it. You know. Oh, really? It has to do with the eye. Oh, that's that that kind of lens is what you mean. I, I thought you meant like an optical lens. I, it is an optical lens. I, I'm like like what I'm wearing on my face, not like what's in my face. You know, I, I don't know that for sure, um, but I would think that the reason that it's named after that is because of the shape. Um, just, yeah, just okay. because it's like slightly uh, curved, you know, like like glasses or or like your own eye would be. After all, the optical lens in your eye and the optical lens on a on a pair of glasses is is not all that different. They're, they're double convex lenses look just like lentils. There you go. Oh yeah, totally. And that would be yeah, things in your eyes and lenses that you may look through, like a telescope or a microscope or something like that. Right on. So. They, they come in all shapes and colors, so there's big and little ones, there's a brown, yellow, red, and black ones. Um, they, there's a lot of them that come from Asia, and they're used in Asia. Also, lentils are really widely used in Greek cuisine and Middle Eastern cuisine, uh, so you might find them a lot. It, you go to like a, a shawarma place or your Greek place to get a gyro or whatever. Um, they're, they're more commonly uh, used by those kinds of ethnicities, so... Um, so for you and I, for example, who might have come from more of a Midwestern, you know, Caucasian American background, we're probably not eating a lot of lentils when we're younger. Definitely not something that we were exposed to yeah, in right. my family. Um, and then the soluble fiber in lentils helps keep your cholesterol down and also your um, your your blood pressure under control, which is really cool. Uh, and I. I think the festival in general, it's it's in Pullman, Washington, right? So it, it is like three or four hours east of Seattle in this area in Washington, like you were saying before, that was is kind of uh, um, farmed and and known for for growing Very a lot rich of rich farm area of that kind of stuff. I remember flying over that area; it looks really cool. They they've been around for a long time, the National Lentil Fest, and it's August nineteenth to the twentieth this particular year. Um, 
So does it surprise you that there that there is a festival for this this kind of food in particular? Not really. You know, I get that because it's such an important crop to the area, they're going to have a festival for it. Like, we have corn fests out here in the Midwest, and corn isn't, like, any sort of great product. It's just corn, you know. But we have festivals to it because it's important to us around here. So, you know, it makes sense that they would have a lentil festival. I was surprised to find out that there was one. <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Joining us now on the show is the director of the National Lentil Festival in Pullman, Washington, Alexandria Anderson. The long-running fest takes place this year on August 19th and 20th, so thank you for joining us, Alex. Yes, thanks so much for having me. Not a problem. So, a surprisingly large amount of people aren't even really that familiar with lentils, even though they date all the way back to the cradle of civilization a few thousand years ago. Earlier in the show, we went over some of the lentils' history and usage. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about the history of the National Lentil Festival itself and when it got started? Of course. So the National Lentil Festival was started in 1989 as basically a, a harvest celebration. So at the end of harvest, we all got together, and the very first lentil fest featured a parade downtown with just a few wagons and whatnot. Lots of our farmers were able to attend. It was a great time to, of course, celebrate the end of harvest and um, all the things that they accomplished over that year. So that's by, basically why it was started as a, as a harvest celebration. But it, is, it has grown into a huge event with dozens of different activities that really anyone can enjoy, somebody in the whole family. Um, we, we definitely call ourselves a quirky festival, I guess you could say that. But um, as far as the evolution of the festival, it's really grown. Um, it's now at the end of August instead of the end of fall um, and that just is best for the community as far as all the students are getting back um, to school we have two major universities in the area so it's a it's a nice celebration to the end of summer and a ramp up for the school year uh, but that's basically why it was started sure makes sense and that's mm -hmm. an interesting story one of the things that drew us to talk about the festival besides the uniqueness of the theme is the nationally recognized legendary lentil cook-off um, each year, the top five finalists are flown into uh, the festival and compete to be the grand prize winner for a $2,000 prize. What are some of your favorite recipes that have actually come out of the contest? Great question. So our legendary lentil cook-off is a great activity at the event, definitely a festival favorite. And we get um, over 100 recipes submitted over the, over the past couple of years. We've gotten over 100. I would say around, around 120 is where we hover around. Um, and some of those recipes that have come out of the cook-off um, have been super unique. So like you mentioned, um, a very unique recipes. We've seen lentil pizza, so lentils and crust, basically, lentil granola, lentil crisp. Some of those more common uses of lentils, of course, are soups, stews, cool lentil salads have been really popular over the past couple of years. Mm -hmm. So like a warm, wet, uh, warm weather salad with watermelon and lentils, kind of a unique combination, but they really do complement each other. But the most bizarre one, I think, is actually a lentil ice cream. And so <laughs> lentils are incorporated in the ice cream, uh, and they give a little crunchy component, kind of like Rice Krispies would, but a little bit more earthy of a flavor, of course. So lentil ice cream is something that we've seen in the cook-off, but um, it's also something that's featured as at one of our food vendors. And the line for the lentil ice cream is insane. So there's all, there's all sorts of people who... 
um, either try it at the festival or, you know, they have to go to Lentil Fest every year just to get that lentil ice cream. So do you know uh, specifically about the recipe? Is that like a traditional preparation of ice cream and they're putting in the lentils afterwards or more like a pistachio ice cream where they're, they're actually steeping, um, you know, the, the mixture with the lentils while it cooks and then, and then draining it out? Um, I believe that they add them in, add them in afterward. Okay. Well, uh, that's something to look forward to try for sure and and something I've never had. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it it is delicious. You might be pleasantly surprised. (laughs) So among other kind of wacky things uh, at the festival, one evening features a big, huge stainless steel bowl of lentil chili. Over 350 gallons of it, as I understand. At least this is what was happening last year. Um, Yep. (laughs) That actually gets served out to the crowd? Yeah, exactly. So uh, Friday night, we feature the world's largest bowl of lentil chili, and it ends up being between 350 and 400 gallons of chili. Last year, it was about 380 gallons, and we actually stir it with a paddle, so like a canoe paddle. It's about uh, four or five feet long, um, a paddle, and then every all the volunteers and everything, they sign the paddle at the end of the year. And so actually, in our office here, we have at least 20 different paddles displayed in the office and so it's kind of a fun interactive thing that people can look at but yes um so it's this giant stainless steel bowl of chili that wsu actually prepares for us early <clears throat> early on friday and then all of the guests at lentil fest can receive a complimentary um, free bowl of lentil chili um it's about five ounces or so but typically if you want to go get more that's um, more guests are more than willing and more than available to um, go get a second bowl or even a third sometimes. And one quirky thing about our um, our chili recipe is it actually features cocoa. Um, so, so that's a fun implementation of a, a new flavor component, I guess you could say, in the chili that adds a lot of um, adds a lot to it. Yeah. Um, so, have you ever tried to get that into the Guinness Book of World Records, or is, is lentil chili too specific? <laughs> I think that they've looked into it in the past, but we haven't been, we haven't been able to do that. It, it costs a lot of money to get them there, but um, I think that we could probably foresee that happening in the future. Um, it, it could be down the road there as an option for us. But um, right now, it's, it's only on Friday night, so it is an option for those folks Friday night to get their free bowl of lentil chili, and it's a, it's a really fun thing that people are always looking forward to. And you can see pictures of it on our Facebook or our website, lentilfest.com. Gotcha. So uh, back to a more serious topic. Charity is an important part of this event. And I know last year's fest included a uh, Feeding Children Everywhere event that resulted in 25,000 plus meals distributed throughout the local area. So I was wondering mm-hmm. if, if there were plans to continue that effort going forward or other new ideas to bring charity into the festival. Yeah, so we work with several different nonprofits, um, and local nonprofits for the event as well. So like you mentioned, the Feeding Children Everywhere event, we started in 2015, last year, um, and it was a great collaboration. And um, any volunteer was able to come in for 10 minutes or two hours, and they helped prepare these meals that were donated um, to Second Harvest locally and then distributed. Um, and we were actually able to, like you said, um, package over 25,000 meals for that. So that was great. And we are working to continue that this year it is in uh, we're in the planning stages of it and we do hope to bring it back to the festival in 2016 but we actually work with several other nonprofits at the event as well um the whitman county humane society staffs our beer and wine garden on friday night and a donation is made to them after the festival um so that's one way another 
group that we work with is the Rotary. They pour wine at the event both days, and they get a portion of the proceeds donated back to them. We work with the Pullman High School SSA in our Coca-Cola trailers, and they get half of the proceeds donated back to the the Future Farmers of America, or SSA. Um, And we also work with all sorts of other nonprofits um, at the event, typically providing um, some sort of volunteer base and then getting a donation afterwards. So those are just a couple to name. Uh, But we are so thankful for the the community support that we get for this event. As I said, it started in 1989, and so this will be our 28th annual event. We've been been able to work with so many different great groups groups and organizations um, to really ramp up the festival over the years. Yeah, that's terrific and amazing work you guys are doing there. So congratulations on that. And, Thank you uh, so much. You're welcome. And thanks for giving us some great background information on what sounds like a really fun and, and definitely a unique festival centered around the underappreciated lentil. So <laughs> Yes. And if I can just point out that this year, 2016, the UN actually declared it the International Year of Pulses. So pulses are basically grain crops, so lentils, split peas, chickpeas, and dried beans. And so that is a pulse. And so you'll, you'll be seeing a lot more information um, about pulses, about how good they are for, uh, for the body, for the earth, um, and how um, inexpensive they can be. So, so really good on that way. Um, and so it's the International Year of Pulses. Hopefully you know a little bit about it now, but I um, encourage you to check out some more information on that because they are very healthy for you and really good for the earth too. Sure. So the United Nations is getting behind it. That's great. <laughs> Yeah, so they actually declared it um, in October, November, maybe even before that. So they declared it the International Year of Pulses. And we're basically just trying to get the word out about how healthy lentils are for you. And um, they're actually a great, the, the way that lentils and pulses are farmed is better for the environment. They, they use less water. They implement um, nitrogen into the soil. So uh, th- there's a lot of benefits to that. Um, but yeah, so it's International Year Pulses. I encourage you to check it out. <laughs> mm-hmm. So if people are interested in heading out to Pullman, Washington this summer mm-hmm. to attend, then when will tickets go on sale and how can you purchase them? Tickets actually are free. So um, Lentil Festival is a free community event. Well, there you go. The only thing, <laughs> yep, the only things that cost money are food at some of our food vendors and then beer and wine sales and then some of our other vendors have t-shirts we have handcrafted booths all that good stuff so um it is a free event there's live music on our main stage which is really fun um there's all sorts of sporting events that people can participate in like a 5k we have a tour to lentil bike ride um and all sorts of other events as i said over over a couple dozen different events you can check out our website lentilfest.com for more details um and of course some more details as the event approaches and we're just a few months away now almost Yep. Well, there you go. So there's no reason not to attend the festival and all sorts of exactly. things to do there. Yep. And uh, we'll, we'll, of course, post uh, some links over to the website and some of the things that you can do while you're there as well. So thanks again, Alex, for joining us, and, and you have a great evening. Yes, thanks so much. Have a great day. Well, we, we appreciate Alex uh, for joining us. You know, this take, podcast is making me hungry. 
It's, well, of course it is. <laughs> we should have a little grill off to the side where we can just, where we have like one particular dish based on those uh, the things we're talking about. We could pull the grill up to the window, just stick your arm out. That seems like a bad do idea. Do what you need to do. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so uh, I, I didn't get a whole lot of, uh, of opportunity to finish up the beer since I was uh, talking to Alex, but... Let me do my thing a little bit, and uh, we have another one coming up here. So that brings us to our final food festival, the Gilroy Garlic Festival in Gilroy, California. So that is just south of San Jose and San Francisco, right? South of the Bay Area, about 30 minutes. And definitely the oldest, this will be the 38th annual and the largest drawing with crowds over 100,000 people you know, throughout the three days of the festival. Uh, that we're chatting about tonight. So this is a huge event. It, it really is a, a gigantic event. And one of the funny things uh, about this particular one is when I was when I was looking up and, and doing some research and trying to figure out what we were going to discuss tonight, this particular event, I figured they would have some kind of garlic festival um, in the United States, but I didn't realize to what extent the uh, the garlic industry in California actually produced garlic and distribute it. So, like in in the United States, tons of garlic comes from California, but for the world's production, a lot of that I believe comes from Mexico and from China. China and India are the two biggest producers. China apparently producing way more than the rest of the world combined. But we do get a ton of it from California, and any grocery store you go to will generally have uh, like a little selection of California garlic bulbs, which are absolutely awesome. And there's so many different kinds of garlic, etc. We could do a whole show on that, just like we did on bacon last year. And it's one of the, our favorite things, I think, to to cook here at uh, at the studio. Oh, I love garlic. I, I kind of want to grow some just because I can have my own homegrown garlic. Even though it's relatively cheap, and it's easy to get from the store. You know, with garlic, you actually have to like plant it in the fall. And and then you kind of grow throughout the winter season and harvest in the spring. I think is when is how that works. I'll have to remember that at the end of the planting season here in the Midwest. Maybe we'll do a gardening show, Dave, and we'll get to uh, go over all that when it's the right time to plant this stuff. Maybe well, we can plant some lentils. I don't know how well they would grow here, but I imagine they would be pretty decent. The northwestern climates uh, where where they grow a whole lot of that is going to be a little more rainy maybe uh, or, or perhaps it'll be a different kind of uh, altitude I'm not sure but it, it seems like Washington is well, they is, grow it like all over India all over Turkey and in the Middle East it's pretty far Lentils, north that is. Yeah. so Midwest should be able to handle and they grow garlic everywhere they grow garlic in every state except for Alaska yeah uh, so I love Wikipedia so to celebrate the California festival we have a special beer from Stone Brewing which is based in Escondido California <laughs> Uh, haven't been there yet. A lot of my friends have, though, and they say that it's a fantastic place to visit. This particular beer is called Old Guardian. That's right. And uh, tell us a little bit about it. So uh, from Stone, it is dry hopped with peco hops, and uh, we saved the biggest for last. 11% alcohol by volume. There you go. It's a barley wine style ale. Now, permit me a minute while I... No, I'm not going to read the gigantic story on the back of this bottle, but like every Stone bomber comes with this huge story on the back and i suggest that you read them all because they're usually quite entertaining yeah the thing about stone brewing uh beers is that they have the small print of probably 
Um, well, a couple. It's got to be like three point font. A couple hundred and it, words. Yeah. It wraps around the bottle in a way that you can't see the whole thing at once. So you're constantly turning back and forth. They really make you work for it, don't they? Well, maybe <laughs> it's just tougher once you've been drinking what's inside the bottle. Well, it's it's certainly possible. <laughs> um, so let's let's talk about some of our favorite dishes with garlic in them. So I'll start, and and garlic should be a a primary ingredient. It doesn't have to be the featured, but because uh, I know that garlic, for example, um, could be used, and a lot of people would say it should be used in almost everything you cook, uh, with few exceptions like desserts and things like that, uh, which may not go necessarily um, together. But for me, one of the favorite things that I have is uh, I like I like braising and uh, and and slow cooking meats, um, but I don't like that the red meats tend to be tend to be worse for you, right? So I, I like to experiment with really flavorful chicken dishes. And my favorite dish that I make with garlic has a ton of garlic. It's a it's it's generally called 40 clove garlic chicken. And it's not very you difficult. Stole my favorite garlic dish. It's not very difficult <laughs> to make. It's it's literally you go to the store, you buy a couple bulbs of garlic, bulb being the word for, for all of those cloves. A cluster of cloves, yeah. And then you just peel them all but you don't chop them all up you just you throw them in and in fact some recipes don't even call for the peeling of it because as soon as you uh as soon as you braise it for a long time um in the oven or on the stovetop um that roasted garlic just slides right out of the of the uh of the peel so you don't necessarily have to do that but i i tend to anyway just just to make sure that you're not eating some of that paper although let's be honest it's not paper it's it's part of the garlic plant it's like a leaf basically right that's true so it's not bad for you without going into the whole recipe all you really do is you take all these garlic cloves you throw them into this great liquid that has butter and wine and uh uh, and seasonings and uh, probably some broth and chicken and then you what i would generally do is it would take those like um kind of seared off chicken breasts or chicken thighs or, or chicken pieces Throw them in that liquid and then put it in the oven. Just let it cook for a long time until everything is falling off the bone and the garlic is roasted enough where you can take a knife and just spread it on some bread. That's when garlic is the best, when it acts like butter. Yeah. It's, and you just spread it on bread and eat it. It's amazing. That's delicious. So that that's my favorite. So what, what uh, dishes do you think that uh, are up there in the pantheon of, uh, of preferred dishes? Uh, well... Really, um, I love making pesto sauce, and you know one of the most important ingredients in pesto is the garlic, right? You've got the nuts, that's you know the base. You've got the basil, that's the star. But the garlic, if you have a lot of really good garlic, then it's going to be an amazing pesto. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like using it in pesto, and then everything that goes with pesto. So uh, if you're going to be making fish, you got to have garlic. Uh, but maybe my favorite thing is just real simple garlic bread. You get me a nice big loaf of garlic bread with butter and garlic on it. That's all I need. Well, as bread is is generally cooked with just a couple of ingredients, then it becomes a, a, a really good straight man for this uh, for this skit. You know, so you've got uh, an item of food that is generally just flour with a pinch of salt and and a couple other ingredients in it, and so you've got a a vehicle. You could for... put the the garlic in the bread if you wanted. Sure, but you've got a vehicle there of bread, like let's say it's French bread or whatever, just being this kind of blank slate that anything you put on it really stands out. Oh, totally. Um, you know, I, I'm 
I'm such a big fan of garlic. Um, you know, it goes so well with pork. It goes really well with fish and chicken. Uh, about the only thing it doesn't go super well with is, I don't know. I can't think of anything. <laughs> I was going to say steak, but of course I would be totally wrong. Well, like there. I said, the, it the, goes very well with steak. The desserts don't really work well unless it's a savory dish. Um, and if you're going to cook with raw garlic, which I, I don't, a lot of people say you should not put raw garlic in a dish, but there's a lot of people that would also disagree with you. A lot of Greek dishes are made with raw garlic to have that really pungent flavor. It's and, a lot stronger, that's for sure. Well, and there's also a, a little known fact by people. We all know that garlic is, is good for you, right? Good for your heart. It's, I think, well known. It's good for a lot of things. In fact, a lot of people used to use it as a, a, a panacea almost for all sorts of ailments. Uh, if you have a cold, you take garlic. If if uh, you've got the flu or if there's something that... It's much more palatable than leeches or bloodletting. <laughs> yeah. But but it, it has really been shown to to have a lot of, uh, of, of, of good effects for your health. And so what they say is that those effects are most present when the garlic you're eating is raw, uncooked garlic. If you want to get the effects of eating garlic um, th- that are really good for your health, then you have to use a lot of cloves if you're cooking them. So someone, uh, I, I was listening to another podcast the other day, um, about garlic, ironically enough, and they were they were saying that it's um, not ironic at all. It, it well, that's Alanis Morissette ironic. Just call me Alanis Morissette. Yeah, they uh, they were saying that you need to cook like five cloves of garlic in order to give you the same health benefits of eating just one clove of of, of raw garlic. I think with a lot of food. Don't you lose some of the nutritional properties when you cook it? Yeah, vegetables, uh, a lot of things like that. You lose that. some vitamins and stuff like that. Which you, is it gains, especially with meat, you gain other things by cooking it. Gain other benefits, I should say. But yeah, you you gain the benefit of being the top of the food chain. Well, you know, cooking food <laughs> predigests it for you so that your body needs to do less work to process everything. Sure, but there's plenty of foods that are better raw, um, just like I'm mentioning now. They're healthier raw. I think it's more like meats. Like, well, it's certainly meat. Well, you're talking about, the, but we're getting off track though, and and perhaps that could be another show. Uh, although I would never recommend that anybody go on uh, just a raw diet. I just think that's not that's not sensible. It's not practical either, really. Well, that's same word, same synonyms, <laughs> synonyms, right? Um, well, people do all kinds of things that aren't sensible. So I, I forget what this dish is called, but one of our friends brought it over. I've had it at a lot of Greek places, and it's it's kind of like almost like a like a looks like a mashed potato almost, but it's really just garlic and lemon and a lot of other things. Cauliflower, right? No, no cauliflower is a vegetable. Oh, I thought it was like mashed cauliflower to look like mashed potatoes. Well, I, what I'm referring to is it's it's like a dip that uh, they serve at Greek restaurants specifically for their bread, okay. where they, they're not giving you garlic bread. They're giving you bread, and then they're and giving like you, a dipping thing. And this dip is like raw garlic with lemon and a couple other ingredients. That's like pureed. That so it's good. It's like super, super strong. I eat that. Yeah, it's it's, it's terrific. Um, so let's talk about this beer. Um, We've got the barley wine style ale. Um, it's calmed down a little bit. We can take a sip. Um, it's it's surprisingly for an eleven percent barley wine. It's more mellow than the first beer that we had. It's funny when when you when you take a sip, you think it's going to have like a a real reaction, and then it, it or like has, a bite to you. It's incredibly subtle. 
the the aftertaste of this is almost like a. Uh, it has a very subtle mouthfeel, and then the aftertaste is very strong. This is a, kind of a weird beer to drink. Well, I think it's delicious, but it almost it doesn't even taste like a beer. It tastes like uh, some other kind of a drink, almost. You know. Mm. I'm getting uh, a lot of pineapple. Really. Wow. Yeah, I get that too. It tastes like citrusy pineapple, but it's it's got the barley wine tendencies and a That's huge, probably the hops. A huge ABV. I, I kind of like this. It's so weird that a a, a beer that with eleven percent alcohol by volume is going to taste like you're you're drinking um like a hopped up pineapple juice. <laughs> now I'm I'm probably being a little too pedestrian in my uh um in, in, in breaking that down. But anyway, so what what do you think? Do you, you kind of get the same flavors or no? Yeah, I like this beer. Uh, I definitely see the same thing that you were seeing in it. Um, so it's it's a 2016 release. It was bottled at the end of January. So we know that this is like peak for this beer right now. So, peak season. Uh, it, it, unless we were going to age it. We could age it. I, I mean, I think aging usually mellows things out. You don't need to mellow this out at all. No, this this is a brand new beer, and if you aged it, I wonder what would happen to it. But certainly not necessary for because it's too harsh or anything like Someday, that. Someday I'll, I'll you know be wealthy enough to buy two of all the fancy beers that I get, and I can age one and drink one right away. Why stop at two, Jason? Then I'll age two of them for different periods of time. There and you go. Drink the other one. So in anticipation of talking to. Uh, uh, David Reynolds, who who is the guy who's the president of the Gilroy Garlic Festival, uh, I'd like to talk about just a couple of crazy facts that you might not know about garlic. First, it used to be called Russian penicillin, which is so funny to me, and and they gave it to soldiers as a medicine. So I don't know if that was a you know a, a good nickname. Well, I'm not sure, but I do know that a lot of families, for example, in the United States. For, for many years, when, when we were a younger country, in um, the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, they didn't really use garlic in any of their dishes. They didn't really use these kinds of ingredients that now we take for granted. When they made stuff, right, they, they would make it very simply. And these extra ingredients like ginger and garlic and, and those kinds of roots and things that we now yeah. find at the store and we use in almost everything we cook, those just weren't in... Everyday cooking in America. The only cooking shows that were on when I was a kid was like Yan Can Cook and um, The Frugal Gourmet and Julia Child. They were all on PBS. Well, Julia Child would have broadcast the garlic because she was French cooking. Certainly. But a lot of that stuff seemed like it was a lot more complicated than and less accessible to people. Hey, this is TV dinner generation, you know? It's a lot has changed in the last 15 <laughs> years as in terms of food on television. And that really has led to this whole rebirth of, you know, probably why we're talking about food stuff now, why we cook all the time. Yeah. Uh, so, well, know. because we used to eat a packet and a can and a piece of meat cooked for two hours. And that just was our meals. And we were happy about it, damn it. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I, I guess. Because we didn't know any better, that's all. But but it is cool that, that you get this uh, sort of evolution of, of not only the, the food, but, but of the people that make the food. Our whole generation is, is vastly different. I think from... it's something that people had to be exposed to more. You know, my, uh, my parents didn't really cook with that stuff back then, but they do now. They use all this stuff now. My, they go through garlic, like, all the time. <laughs> they cook 
all kinds of fresh vegetables and uh, lots of fresh foods that are more seasoned. That's good. Maybe not as heavily handed season as I enjoy, but that's just me. Well, everybody's palate's different, and that, that's great. Um, there, there still are people out there that, that don't even have salt and pepper in their house, and they, they get a piece of meat and cook it and eat it. They just don't have any concept of uh, of of how food works and 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 a, and a palate and food flavor abuse? profiles. It's tough. No, no, they have an eating disorder. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, number two. So garlic is one of the healthiest foods on earth. So tons of health properties: anti blood coagulation, antioxidant, antiviral, antimicrobial, lowers cholesterol, anti cancer. Helps fight the common cold. And that, that one is questionable at the end. But like I said, uh, it used to be given to people no matter what was wrong with them. If they were sick because their liver was failing or if they were sick because they were sneezing. Garlic is going to help you. We are going to give it to you. And, and it's so amazing that it's so great for you. But again, I, I would recommend those people out there try it's some. It's got to be the best combination of amazing flavor and good for you. Yeah. I mean, in, in cooking dishes with... Uh, Garlic and lentil in them has, has got to be. Uh, I mean, you're you're basically. Gonna... We should have made a garlic lentil bacon dish tonight. It would be so easy to do that. It really would. <laughs> Those would all go together. Very they kind well. of lend, uh, you know, uh, to each other. Uh, number three, in ancient Greece, brides actually at their weddings carried bouquets of herbs and garlic, and not flowers. Flowers is something that happened way later. Herbs and garlics were the things that were most appreciated in that particular civilization. Because they knew that not only was it medicinal, but also it was delicious. And, <laughs> and it they smelled good. Constantly used it all the time. It's that disconnect. It's just what we were talking about earlier. It's so weird that people nowadays are just getting into that, the older generation, when ancient Romans used garlic in everything that they cooked. Well, you know, forever everyone had to make their own food. And then for, you know, the last 70 years, there's been a lot of pre-processed food. Oh, those poor baby boomers. So that's what everyone, you know, alive now pretty much has grown up on and lived on their whole lives. The most cloves of garlic eaten in one minute is 34, achieved by uh, an Indian guy named Deepak Sharma Bajagain of Nepal. 34. 34 cloves of garlic in one minute. Just popping raw garlic cloves. So I, like a for, gangster. I for, for reasons other than food eating contest, have had like one or two cloves of garlic before. And man, that that is a that's a sensation. <laughs> 34 cloves of garlic. I think your garlic. mouth would go numb. That's pretty crazy. You would never be able to smell anything again. So congratulations, Deepak. Uh, I, will well not, done. I will not be the one taking you down from that record. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and a last one that I wanted to bring up just because we're, again, from the Chicago area. Uh, the city of Chicago is named after garlic. The Indian word for garlic, uh, don't know how to pronounce it, uh, you know, in, in truth, but it, it looks like it's uh, Chicagawa. Chicagawa? Dude, you, you nailed it. And, and so the city of Chicago actually named after garlic. That's fantastic. Yeah. I, I could be proud to live here in this city of winds and garlic. So let's go now to Dave Reynolds, president of the 2016 Gilroy Garlic Festival in Gilroy, California, which takes place this summer from July 29th to the 31st. So thanks for joining us on the show tonight, Dave. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. So we got into a few of the details about the Garlic Festival earlier in the show, but could you please share with us a little bit about the history of the fest and how it originally got started? You bet. The festival started, uh, this will be the 38th year, so 38 years ago. Uh, local community business owner and um, 
farmers and uh, other community leaders got together to find a way to celebrate garlic and find a way to give back to the community. Mm-hmm. So they started this garlic festival. And originally it was a two-day event that they thought, you know, just to celebrate the local crop of garlic um, and be able to provide an outlet to raise money for charity uh, would just draw a couple thousand people. And tens of thousands of people showed up for the two-day event. And now, in, you know, 38 years later, we have almost uh, 100,000 people or more showing up annually. And after this many years, we've raised, raised almost $11 million for charity. That's really impressive. Yeah, it's put together by 4,000 volunteers. So people living and working on their regular, in their regular world in, the, in, in Gilroy come together once a year. 4,000 folks put the whole thing together, cook um, and serve mm-hmm. the festival goers for the three days and uh, raise significant amounts of money. So, so speaking of that, the, the whole show tonight has really been about festivals across the U.S. that highlight the food. And, uh, of course, right in the name, the Gilroy Garlic Festival is definitely no exception to that. And there's a big section there, right, called Gourmet Alley that showcases a bunch of garlicky dishes from a whole bunch of booths. Like there were 60 plus last year. And there's cooking demonstrations from the chefs in Gourmet Alley. And there's free garlic ice cream during the festival. So from your perspective, for example, uh, what, what are some of the more popular or unique garlic dishes that you've seen come out of there? Absolutely. The uh, one big item that seems to have everybody trying at least once is the garlic ice cream, which is kind of an interesting mix of ice cream with garlic. But in the um, Gourmet Alley, we have uh, big uh, pyro chefs that uh, you know, are cooking up uh, the calamari and the scampi and huge iron skillets, mm-hmm. uh, doing 10 and 15 uh, foot flame ups as they're cooking, wow. the garlic fries, garlic bread, um, uh, the pasta got, contesto, pepper steak sandwiches. <laughs> all of those things are just delicious. Oh, that's fantastic. So there are three scheduled cooking competitions during the fest, one on each day. So we have the Champions for Charity, the Great Garlic Cook-Off Contest, and the Garlic Showdown. So could you give us like the scoop on the cooking contest? And I want to know, is the garlic crown actually made of garlic? Great question. Yes, it is. You know, for the oh, recipe fantastic. contest, they actually give out a crown uh, made of garlic. And uh, the three different events, the uh, Champions for Charity is this year First Responders. It's a new event this year where they're going to be competing against each other in three different courses, uh, and the winner will be able to donate the money uh, to that First Responders charity. And the recipe contest, we collect hundreds of recipes uh, from uh, folks all across the country and have the eight best recipes compete against each other for that um, competition. And then the final competition is the cooking showdown where we have professional chefs performing throughout the day, competing against each other uh, for a championship there as well. So are those chefs that we may have heard of or seen on TV or or local celebrities or or how does that work? Mostly local celebrities. Um, Some years we have you know, uh, celebrities like Carla Hall or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, different folks that are on TV. But in the recent years, we've had more of the Bay Area, San Francisco area chefs uh, for their restaurants that are that come down and do different performances. Sure. So the GilroyGarlicFestival.com says it's the world's greatest summer food festival. Now, we haven't gotten a chance to make it out there yet. Uh, we're from Chicago, so it's on our short list right now. Um, but what other attractions are there that we haven't mentioned, you know, aside from 
you know, stuffing your face with garlic, which sounds very appealing to me. Sure. There's another event. No, that's great. There's another event this year, which is the uh, barbecue cook-off. We're actually having 20-plus barbecuers that are going to be competing in a uh, KCBS, which is the Kansas City Barbecue Society um, sanctioned event. Uh, So there'll be 20 barbecuers where they'll be competing against each other, cooking up ribs and what have you. And uh, festival goers can also sample that food. So it's a whole new area that we're um, making available this year. And then there's entertainment. We have vans on three different stages for three days um, that are going to be out there. We have uh, different, um, like I said before, we've got the the barbecue piece, the cook-off stage, live entertainment. um, And really Gilroy is a great spot to come, especially for the festival. We're not far from Monterey. San Francisco Bay Area, so it's a great destination to come for the festival as well as visit the overall area. Well, that sounds great. And so, again, the Gilroy Garlic Festival runs from July 29th to the 31st. And how much are tickets this year, and, and where can someone who's interested go to purchase them? Go to the GilroyGarlicFestival.com website is where you would go to buy the tickets. Uh, the tickets for general admission are $20, and uh, they go on sale online starting in June. So, Dave, thanks again for joining us, and I'm just wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing. So how exactly did you uh, personally become involved with the Garlic Festival? Is that just chance, or is there an interesting story there? Um, It's just mostly chance. I moved here uh, to Gilroy about 20 years ago, and working and living in Gilroy, you're touched by the fact that this huge festival goes on, and, you know, being a part of the community uh, was a great opportunity to, to get involved and work and and uh, just many years of doing everything from cooking to entertaining, serving um, through the years, came up the ranks and finally became president. Very cool. Well, uh, I bet you're looking forward to the festivities beginning in a couple of months. And it's going to be awesome weather, of course, down in California, like it always is. Um, and to all of our listeners out there, this does sound like a can't miss festival to me that we're definitely going to try and hit up in the next couple of years, if not this one. And we would definitely advise you to go experience at least once. And I bet you that if you experience it once, you'll be a return, a return uh, festival goer. <laughs> so, Absolutely. So uh, just another reminder to go visit GilroyGarlicFestival.com for more information and to get your appetites up for this summer's fest. So thanks, Dave. We appreciate it, and you have a great night. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Dave. That was great. So thanks again to to Dave and yeah, it was great for him to join us. the The garlic festival sounds like a, a really cool thing to to hit up if you're in the area, or even maybe to make a trip of. Right when I find myself in the Bay Area at the end of July, I'm definitely going to be going there at some point because it's been 38 years. So I, you know, I, I hate to say this, but I could probably wait a couple of years. I'd still make it there. Well, based on their track record, they'll probably be having it for quite a while. I think so. I think so. I think it's a safe bet. But go as soon as you can. But yeah, super cool. So so we're still on this uh, this last beer from Stone. And the barley wine. It's a really nice one. 
It, it it's interesting that you brought up the pineapple flavor to it. I know that uh, you know uh, you mentioned that earlier, and it it just strikes me as I'm drinking it, it's there, and I don't think it's purposeful. I don't think it's added to it. I think something else in there just resembles pineapple. Oh, maybe, but that's definitely the aftertaste that I get is uh, is a citrusy, fruity kind of a taste, and that's uh, you know typical of some hops. So it, perhaps that's the kind of hops that they use. Maybe. So So what was your favorite beer uh, that we had tonight? And uh, what are your final thoughts on, on, on the festivals that we went over? Uh, I think my favorite beer was probably the, uh, the first beer that we had tonight from Pipeworks, uh, the Easter Bunny versus Unicorn. Anything <laughs> versus Unicorn is pretty good in my book. Uh, that one had such a, a neat kick to it. That I really enjoyed it. This one is so mellow, almost too mellow. But it's 11%, and I'm probably going to be drunk when I'm done with it. Well, there you go. So it's accomplished its goal, perhaps. I think, yeah, it's a sneaky one. <laughs> what about you? Which which beer did you like tonight? Uh, I, I kind of like this last one, because because I do like that that ending aftertaste of, of the pineapple. Um, and maybe that's just what I'm getting. You, you're noticing it, too. Uh, it kind of reminds me of drinking the Japanese variant of, of whiskey that's really popular now. These Japanese scotches and Japanese bourbon kind of yeah. things. They, they all have, unlike the United States uh, versions of those drinks, kind of a, uh, a citrusy quality to them, a fruity finish. And it's really, it's kind of neat because you still get the alcohol taste. And the the upfront taste is definitely very, uh, you know, what you'd expect. It tastes like the barley, like the barley wine. wine. This is this is a more complex beer. It's probably the most complex one we've had of the night. Yeah, they, they put a lot into this, obviously. It'd be interesting to see the breakdown. Delicious. And as far as festivals go, look, Garlic Festival, it sounds awesome. Lentil Festival, it'd be fun to go check out. But I can't pick anything other than bacon fest bacon fest is the one that i spend a hundred dollars on every year and i cannot wait to go we're going on april 30th just today i made sure i have the day off of work and everything there you go so it's not it's not a competition obviously but but since that's the one we've been to before and for several years that's certainly one that we're excited to go to inspired this episode but it really would have been nice in hindsight if we would have made if we could have made it to the garlic festival maybe or or made some kind of dish uh, that you know combined all of them together. Well, you know, it's not like we can share it with the listeners other than giving them a recipe, anyways. No, it's very true. Uh, but but thank you very much to uh, to the representatives of the festivals that that joined us today to Seth and to Alex and to Dave. We do appreciate you being on the show. And to, uh, to all of you guys that are listening to the podcast on, uh, on iTunes or on Stitcher or wherever you're listening to it, please, uh, if you like the show, subscribe and, and you can hear all of our other stuff. Follow us at uh, uh, Twitter. Uh, follow us on Twitter. <laughs> we at, are not at Twitter. We're at Drink5, actually. <laughs> and uh, Facebook, uh, our, our name on there is Drink5Network. And of course, drink5.com. And we'll have a uh, we'll have an article up as well on the website where you can see all the things we talked about and more. And then links to get tickets to each of these events and more information about where they are and, and all that kind of kind of good kind of good stuff. Excellent. Well, uh, cheers, buddy. Drink five. All right. <laughs>